Please, if you would, open your scriptures to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, Caleb finished with verse 32 of Romans 11 last Lord's Day, and we pick up in verse 33 with what is known as a doxology, a declaration of praise. This is the word of the Lord, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would grant to us this morning something of what you gave to Paul when these words were penned under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Give to us, Father, a wonderful vision before our souls of your majesty, of your unfailing greatness. Lord, be pleased to change our lives for having done so. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Many of us have been to the ocean or to a large lake and we have waded out into the water. We've been knee deep and then chest deep and maybe neck deep and then all of a sudden the bottom disappears and our sense of well-being and safety changes in a heartbeat. You don't know the depths, you don't know where it's going, you don't know how deep this thing will go and so your attitude to that body of water changes very quickly. Well, the Apostle Paul has, has come to a magnificent place in our text. This glorious book of Romans is something where Paul has waded in knee-deep, waist-deep, chest-deep, neck-deep into the character of God and into the grace of God, and finally the bottom disappears. And Paul has to come up, as it were, for air, and all he has left is an exclamation of praise for the magnificence of God. Now, let me change the image for your mind's eye. There's a fascinating sport called deep free diving. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. Divers without air tanks train themselves to dive straight down as deeply as they can possibly go with one breath of air. It's a, it's a very critical sport. It's a sport that requires extraordinary training, tethered only to a vertical cable, and then they have a cable from their own waist to the cable that is loosely connected that forces them to dive straight down rather than to lose their orientation and to go straight down into the depths. Now, Herbert Nietzsche holds the world record for deep free diving. He held his breath for nine minutes, diving straight down 
with only flippers on his feet to a depth of 800 feet. Now, I want you to take two and two-thirds football fields and stack them up and turn them vertically, and that's how deep he dove. Nine minutes, 800 feet, down and back on one breath. That's what Paul has done in Romans. He's gone as deeply as it can be done. And finally, he comes to the surface And here Paul, in this deep dive into the character and the grace of God, has reached the limit of what God the Holy Spirit has given to mankind. And he comes to the surface with the most succinct declaration of God's praise that I think you can find anywhere in Scripture. Put differently, it's the greatest summary of the Christian worldview. If you were to memorize these verses, there is no better place to express to yourself or to anyone else who asks you, what is your view of the world? This is the Christian worldview. This is the Christian manifesto. For 11 chapters, Paul's been unfolding the wonders of God's good news to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And now in the form of a doxology, he makes a pronouncement of praise Can I put it this way, that Paul is kneeling down before the majesty of God in words, somehow by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit to express the inexpressible. Paul's theology in chapters 1 through 11 drives him inevitably to this doxology. I want us to break down this extraordinary text into three beautiful truths for us to embrace with our souls this morning. The first is the depths of our eternal God. The second is the dominion of our eternal God. And the third is the design of our eternal God. Depths, dominion, and design. So look with me at verses 33 through 35 at our first theme to embrace the depths of our eternal God. Read verse 33 again with me. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, I want to submit to you that our ESV uh, is better understood to read this way. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's an astounding exclamation of wonder. Paul is declaring to us that in the end, God's person and his ways cannot be fully fathomed by us as creatures, nor specifically as sinful creatures. There's an utter limit to what we can fully understand about the majesty of God. Paul's praise finds its joy in the great grandeur of God, but that grandeur is so high and so far above us that he must be worshipped and served simply for who he is. In these 11 chapters, Paul, by the leading of the Spirit, has been unfolding the magnificence of the wonder of God's grace in all of its beauty. And the only right response for him, for us, and for the whole of creation is awe. 
is humble adoration, humble admiration for everything that God is in his own worth. Now, when Paul says, oh, the depth of the knowledge of God, it's his exclusive, infinite comprehension of everything that is. Everything that is, everything that will be, everything that might be in all moments, everywhere, at all times. And as another has said, wisdom refers to his arrangement and his adaptation of all of those things to fulfill his holy designs. So not just his knowledge, but his adaptation of everything to fulfillment of his designs. Now, when Paul declares that God's judgments are unsearchable, he wants us to understand that we cannot plumb their depths. Like the deep divers, there's only so far that we can go. We can never understand fully the reasons why God acts the way he does. Think about this for a moment. When difficult things happen in your life and God is taking you through those seasons of great suffering and trial, do we not all automatically ask the question, Lord, why? What are you doing? And one of the answers to that question is, you can never fully plumb the depths of knowing what and why I do what I do. When Paul asserts that the Lord's ways are inscrutable, he means that God's ordering of all things is unfathomable. It's mysterious to us. We're incapable of grasping the infinite number of his providences. Well, I want to submit to you that this statement by Paul is the New Testament equivalent of Isaiah in chapter 55, when God declares through Isaiah that my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are higher than your ways. What's the response of our soul and our mind to verse 33? As I mentioned, it's to be humble adoration and holy admiration for the depths and the inexhaustibility of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Well, think with me for a moment about some of the mysteries of our world. Think of the complexities of the human body. Now, sometimes we complain when we have to see a specialist about one part of our body. We wish that there was a doctor that could understand the whole of the body. But the magnificence of the human body is such that that's an impossibility anymore. The more we learn, the more we understand how little we understand of our organs, of our systems. Think of the complexity of atomic structures and how we're always trying to reduce down to the next smallest aspect of atomic structures. The complexity of the universe, its scope and its vastness. The complexity of the human soul, of our emotions and of our relationships. We're taught here in our text that God is the root. He's the deepest root of all things. He's creator, sustainer, redeemer. He is the end of every search of the human heart and the human mind. Any thought that we as tiny creatures are the masters of our own lives and as you hear in culture a lot these days, the savior of our planet 
is utter foolishness. We are meant to cry in adoring wonder with Paul. Oh, the depths. Under this same truth of the depths of God, look with me at verses 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been the Lord's counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Verse 34 is a rough quote from Isaiah 40, verse 13. It has this sense in the Hebrew. Who has weighed the spirit of Jehovah and being a man of his, that is God's counsel, has taught the Lord. In fact, it's such a beautiful text. It reminds us a great deal also of the book of Job. Let me read to you from Isaiah 40, verse 12 and following. Who has measured the waters of the hollow in his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in a scale? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Who has shown him his counsel? Whom did God consult and who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scale. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. The country of Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are as accounted as less than nothing. What an extraordinary statement of the character and ways of God. Now, Paul is asking really a rhetorical question, isn't he? Who has plumbed the depths of God's knowledge? Who has measured the mind and comprehended everything that God comprehends? To whom has God, when he is struggling and twiddling his thumbs with what to do next, to whom has God reached out for wisdom? Verse 35 is a second quote. It comes from Job chapter 41. It carries the same sense of our passage. Who has ever given a gift of any kind at any time which obligates the Almighty that he should repay us? There's only been one human being in all of human history that God owes anything. Who is that? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has ever done anything that was worthy of being repaid and not one of us. Which of us has the faculties to search out the infinite and eternal thoughts of God? The apostle is essentially telling us that when we stare into the eternal, majestic light of the glory of God, the longer we stare and the deeper we go, the more blind we will become. It's like staring into the sun. After a time, it's simply impossible to stare any longer. We are not God's teacher. We are not God's counselor. We have never given to God that we should be repaid. 
The great Reformation scholar and pastor John Calvin writes pointedly on this text. But if we desire to make an honest examination of things, we shall only find that God is in no way a debtor to us, but that we are all subject to his judgment. That we not only deserve no favor, but we are worthy of eternal death. And Paul not only concludes that God owes us nothing on account of our corrupt and sinful being, but he denies that if a man were perfect, he could bring anything to God by which he would gain God's favor. For as soon as he begins to exist, he already by right of creation is so much indebted to his maker that he has nothing of his own. How beautiful. Dear ones, we, we need to cry, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, how untraceable, how inscrutable is our God. Well, our second truth to embrace with all of our lives this morning is the dominion of our eternal God. And it comes to us in verse 36, the first half of it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Dr. John Stott, who is with the Lord now, the Anglican scholar and pastor, wrote this. If we ask where all things come from in the beginning and still come today, the answer must be from God. If we ask how all things come into being and remain in being, our answer is through God. And if we ask why they came into being and where everything is going, our answer must be for unto God. These three prepositions, from, through, and to, indicate that God is creator, sustainer, and the heir of all things. Do you see what Paul is saying here in the first half of verse 36? That there is no meaning in this world apart from that phrase. That from God and through God and to God are all things. And outside of that truth, we have fundamentally begun to misunderstand everything. He who creates all gifts and bestows them is due the honor and the fruit of every life, every gift, and every talent. And the more rightly God-centered our world is in every facet of our lives, the more we reflect our creator, sustainer, and redeemer. Well, let me press this into our hearts and minds a bit of God's dominion. I want you to look at the heavens with me in your mind's eye for a moment. The vastness of space, the size and complexity of the galaxies. We live in the Milky Way galaxy. I trust that you understand that the Milky Way galaxy is one of billions of galaxies. Our galaxy has billions upon billions of stars. Other galaxies have billions upon billions of suns in each of those galaxies, all of which are larger than our sun. The James Webb Telescope, which orbits the Earth, is the newest 
telescope. The Hubble telescope is the older one, but they show us remarkable things about the universe. They show us remarkable things about quasars and nebulae and black holes and star clusters. And we try more and more to unpack the depths of the universe. But the wonder of it is, is that every time we go another degree into the depths of the universe, we find that there's more and more beyond. We know so little about space. We are like the ant standing on the ground of this globe, crawling about on the surface of the globe, blind, trying to figure out our world. Now look with me at the atomic level. We seek to unpack things that are small. Viruses, molecules, atoms, nuclei, light waves, fusion and fission reaction. Scientists tell us that the great hope for the world going forward is not fission reaction, splitting atoms and their various parts and pieces, but fusion reaction, which does not give off that nuclear radiation that fission does. But the deeper we look, the more we know how little we understand. We were promised by the scientists in the early period of this pandemic that somewhere along the lines we would finally understand the depths of viruses, right? We know a little bit more today than we did three and a half years ago, but not so much. You see, the deeper we look, the more we understand how little we know. But don't you see that that's by God's design? God calls us to look as deeply as we possibly can into things small, as deeply as we possibly can into things great. And every time we discover something new, he is to receive the praise. And yet at the same time, we understand how much more there is to go. Because there is only one who knows and understands and wisely holds all things in his heart, his mind, and his hands. And dear brothers and sisters, if you would live a life worthy to be called a Christian life where God is honored, that is your worldview. That must be your starting place, your ending place. That must be what marks every single day of your life. He's the original cause. He's the sustaining cause. He's the final cause. And so with Paul, we cry out, Oh, the dominion of God over all things. Now, there's a final truth for us to be thrust into by Paul in our text, an inevitable truth, the inescapable truth that drives all of life for all time, and it comes in the second half of verse 36, to him be glory forever. Amen. A concluding note of praise with the amen at the end. Now, you know the word which we pronounce amen most often comes from the language of 
Amen, amen in the scriptures, or truly, truly. So when you pray a prayer and you say amen at the end, it's not that you are saying, okay, Lord, this is my last word, please bless. No, amen means truly. So at the end of your prayer, you're saying truly. Lord, truly have I spoken these things and truly would you answer these things. Paul gets to the end of this note of doxology, this declaration of praise, and he says, Amen. Truly. Dear ones, this is the ultimate design of God. As believers, we often ask, and sometimes it's with the very specific things in life, we say, boy, I wish I knew what God's will for my life is. Here it is. To God be the glory with all of my life, all of my moments, all of my days, my best hours, my worst hours, my healthy hours, my sick hours. To God be the glory. Every creature is designed to ascribe honor and praise to God. We are to know that at the last, all honor will be given to him. It must be so, or he is not God at all. Now, in our human realm, we have a hard time comprehending this. If you or I knew a man or a woman who claimed this for themselves that they should receive all honor and glory and no one else should get anything, but they should get it all, you would know that they're an arrogant megalomaniac. But you see, God is not that way. The Lord is the only person who can be due infinite, eternal honor and praise, yet in the same moment bestow infinite riches and kindness upon his people and his creation. That's the uniqueness of God. No one else can do that. It is not arrogance on God's part. It is magnificence on God's part that he is this way. In the same moment that he is due his rightful and singular praise, he showers his creation and his redeemed people with countless gifts of grace and mercy. He is infinitely and uniquely worthy. Dr. Roger Nicole, who used to be a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, whom my wife Jeannie had the privilege of, of studying under, a wonderful Baptist reform scholar. He described the, the grace of God in the gospel this way, and it's a fitting summary of the book of Romans. We are radically corrupted and sovereignly purified. We are radically enslaved, but sovereignly emancipated. We are radically unable, but sovereignly empowered. What a beautiful description of Romans and of the gospel. Such embracing love in Christ has only one outlet. To God be the glory alone. Amen. Now, as we close, it's vital that you see something here at the tail end of, 
of chapter 11. The inseparable connection here in Romans and with the Apostle Paul and everywhere in Scripture between theology and doxology, between truth and worship. Let me quote John Stott again. It is of great importance to note in Romans 1 through 11 that theology, our belief about God, and doxology, our worship of God, cannot be separated. On the one hand, there can be no doxology without theology. It is not possible to worship an unknown God. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and in Scripture and arises from who he is and what he has done. It was this tremendous truth in Romans 1 through 11 that provoked Paul's outburst of praise. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired in us by the vision of who God is. Worship and theology Worship without theology is bound to degenerate into idolatry. But on the other hand, there should be no theology without doxology. There is something fundamentally flawed about a purely critical, detached, scientific observation of God. No, the true knowledge of God will always lead us to right worship, as it did with Paul. Our place is on our face before him in adoration. Now listen to this concluding phrase. He writes, we must beware equally of an undevotional theology and an untheological devotion. They must be wed. Well, with Paul in our passage, our souls need to lay hold of the depth of God to celebrate and take wonder at the dominion of God and to be full of a majestic sense of worship at the design that all of God is meant, that all of life is meant to redound to his honor. I want to close with what I hope will be a helpful illustration for us as we pull this together. Mr. William Beebe was a biologist, an explorer, an author, and he was a personal friend of Theodore Roosevelt. Now, Teddy Roosevelt was president. I had to look it up, okay, so you don't need to be embarrassed. 1901 to 1909, they were dear friends. Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States, and William Beebe used to visit Roosevelt at Sagamore Hill, which is on Long Island, New York. They would spend the evening together talking, ruminating. They would explore many things together. But on those evenings, they would go outside onto Roosevelt's property. And you remember back in this time, there were very, electricity had been invented, but there was very little electricity in very many places. The sky, that, therefore, was not obliterated by the ambient light, and they could see extraordinary things in the sky. And so they would go outside on the lawn, and they would do this together. They would look to the lower right-hand corner of the constellation Pegasus. And one of them would recite, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. 
It is as large as the Milky Way. It is one of a hundred billion galaxies. It consists of a hundred billion suns, each larger than our own. And then Roosevelt would look at Bibi and he would grin and say, Now, I think we are small enough. Let us go to bed. Perhaps by the scripture this morning, you have been brought so that you have shrunk in size, that you can see the grandeur of your God and to celebrate him, to worship him, to love him with all your being. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for the scriptures. That when we search for you, we are not left in ignorance. But you grant to us the majesty of who you are in these infallible words. Now we humbly come in our closing song to adore you, to admire your majesty to humble ourselves for Jesus' sake.